Well, it's good to be with you. My name's Adam Young. I'm the new curate, and uh, Matt invited me to come speak tonight, so I'm really glad to be here. Um, Just wanted to look briefly at this John 6 passage. Two simple things and ideas. Nothing complicated here. First, we're constantly relearning Jesus. And second, we're constantly relearning trusting Jesus. So first, all four of the Gospels actually have this story of the feeding of the 5,000 recorded. They're recorded in different ways with different emphasis, but they're all there. Matthew and Luke, they're stressing the importance of the miracle itself, pointing to the sign of who Jesus is, that he can work these wonders. Mark uses it to demonstrate Jesus' compassion, how he was filled with compassion for the people and provided for their material need of hunger. John, though, he's framing the story with a little bit of an angle. He's trying to demonstrate that Jesus, later on, Jesus actually says of himself, I'm the bread of heaven. That Jesus came to meet the spiritual needs as well as the physical needs of his people. He satisfies a deeper hunger, a spiritual hunger that people have. But there's something else that I found really intriguing in this passage. It's that this crowd, when he performs this miracle, he feeds 5,000 men besides women and children. This crowd decides, this is the prophet that has come into the world. Let's try to make him king now. And Jesus withdraws from them. He goes up to the mountainside alone by himself. The thing that I find interesting is, In verse 4, we're told this was the Passover, the time of the Passover, which was the high season of feasts for the Jewish people. This was their day of freedom. This was equivalent to our 4th of July. There were deep feelings of patriotism and hopefulness. There was remembering their national pride and their cohesiveness as a people, including their common history. I don't know if they had a Lee Greenwood who created a song that rallied them all together, but surely they sung the Psalms as they went to Jerusalem to feast. The Passover, it was a time to celebrate and remember that God had delivered their forefathers many generations ago when they were oppressed in Egypt by Pharaoh. So it was a festival of freedom, and so there must have been an energy in the air as Jesus had them gathered when he was with them. This crowd was probably whipped up with thoughts of deliverance from Rome, relief from their suffering under Roman oppression. And perhaps this miracle that occurred before them was just another sign and instance that God has heard their cries for freedom. It was going to deliver them and that Jesus was going to be this kind of king. And of course, Jesus, he delivers big time. Uh, He takes just simple loaves and some fish, and he provides for everybody that's there. Now, this is more than a parlor trick. This was more than just for shock to get people's attention. He's meeting the needs of people in front of him to point them to a deeper reality. But they tried to make him king. They had the right impression, but they use a wrong expression. They got the idea, he is sent by God, Who else could do such wonders? In fact, in their own 
texts of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 18, Moses had told them that the Lord will raise up a prophet from among his people and bring about deliverance. And they had just recently had the ministry of John the Baptist. And people had come to John the Baptist at the beginning of John's gospel saying, are you the prophet who's come into the world or should we look for someone else? And John the Baptist says, no, no, I'm not him, but there is one who's coming after me whose sandals I am not even worthy to untie. So he said, it's not me. But this crowd, they recognize the messianic persona that Jesus brings. But like Peter, they're only partially right. They had the right impression, but the wrong expression. He is the son of the living God. And like Moses, he came to set his people free. And like Moses, he came to give them bread from heaven, nourishment from heaven. But Jesus, he, he refuses to cave to expectations. He came to do so much more than a parlor trick. He, came, he wanted to bring about a deeper change. Um, I don't know if you remember back uh, about five or six years ago, LeBron James was starting to peak as the greatest basketball player on earth. And he had come to the end of his contract, his original contract with uh, his hometown Cleveland Cavaliers. And the media kind of caught up in this big thing called the decision. And they broadcast it and they were going, what is LeBron going to do? Is he going to stay with his hometown team? He, he had become a, um, he was at the peak of his powers, so to speak, as a basketball player. He had all his talent and potential that was cresting. The time was right, and Cleveland thought, surely he's going to bring us a championship. And then he announces, I'm taking my talents down to South Beach. And he leaves and goes to Miami and wins a couple championships there. Um, and it devastated people. He, he surprised them to the utmost with what he did. Well, Jesus' career did something similar in Israel. They all expected him to be this kind of deliverer, this messianic messiah who would deliver them from their oppressors, but he came with a healing and teaching ministry, which caught their attention. He won the hearts of people, but yet he ran into trouble, if you remember, with the religious establishment. He experienced betrayal and abandonment from those who are closest to him, who pledged allegiance to him. He was executed publicly as a criminal. He experienced the excruciating separation from his father on the cross. His career ended with death, darkness, and descent to the grave. So he, he definitely disappointed people right here. Later on in John chapter 6, people start leaving him. He has 5,000 people who are wanting to make him king. And later he looks around and it's just his 12 disciples and a few others. And he even asks them, are you going to go too? And Peter responds, where else would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. He had a surprising emphasis in his ministry because he came to meet a deeper human hunger. Each week when we gather for worship, we experience the Eucharist together, the thanksgiving. That's actually Jesus took this bread at this feeding and the Greek word is the Eucharist. He, he offered thanks for it because he came to meet our needs, body and soul. 
Second thing, we constantly are having to relive or relearn, rather, faithful trust in Jesus. These disciples were witnesses to greatness. They saw things that so many of us just yearn to see. In fact, many of us have probably said, well, God, if you show me that you're real, then I'll believe you. (laughs) These men had the very experience with their own eyes and ears. And just after this, they are on a lake, and they become terrified. The commentator, Matthew Henry, actually says about this, after the sunshine of comfort, you better expect a storm. They had just left with full bellies and full hearts, and they're out on the lake, and the scene is set almost like a story. It was a dark and stormy night, right? It says there's darkness, there's a strong wind, there's choppy waves. They're in the middle of the lake, and Jesus is absent. They're having a dark and dangerous and mysterious experience. They're far from the shore of hope. And they're just on the heels of wondrous provision where God provides for them so well. And yet their hearts are fearful. See, unbelief, it so easily rules our hearts, doesn't it? We seem to unsuccessfully outgrow our dependence and need for God as much as we may try. Um, I just got back from being away for a week, um, and my kids were really looking forward to me coming back. And so they said, well, we're going to have Daddy Day yesterday. And so, you know, we all were together as a family, and we were actually right down the street going to Edgar's Bakery for lunch. And my daughter, Aiden, is four years old, and she is so full of life in every way. Um, and that, that expresses itself in very high highs of joy and very deep lows of sorrow. And um, so Aiden said, this is the best day ever. We're going to get a treat at the bakery. You know, she was just skipping down the sidewalk and so happy. Best day ever. It couldn't have been three or four minutes later. We're inside the bakery and she wanted something to drink. And I said, well, you're going to have water with lunch today. And she throws this fit and she's crying. And this is the worst day ever. (laughs) You know, and it's so easy to see with kids because they live so in the moment. They're so present. There's, they're not back five days ago. They're not thinking ahead to what's, ha- what's going to happen next week. They're just right here. And I think we're like that too. We can so easily turn on a dime. We can go from praising God and thanking Him for things that He has provided or done for us. And our memory's so short. When life starts to not work out all of a sudden, when there's a circumstance that comes up that makes us doubt whether he's good or whether he wants what's best for us, our hearts are so fickle. We're just like the disciples. The wind and the waves and the darkness often loom so large. But here's the good news. Jesus comes in the midst of the storm. He comes walking on the water. The scene was set for another miracle, and here it is. Jesus walking on the surface of the lake. And he comes to them, and he says, It's I, do not be afraid. Um, Some have that translated, I am, like I am here. Or I am, like Moses, listening to the voice from the burning bush. I am. 
the God of Israel, the one who led his people into freedom, the one who provided bread from heaven, the one who hovered over the waters at creation. He now demonstrates his power over the natural realm. And this carries forward the lesson from the feeding of the 5,000 just earlier that day, that God's power, it is not limited by earthly supply. It also, John must echo the prophet Isaiah here, Isaiah 43, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I'm with you. Jesus comes to his own. He comes as the hound of heaven. He pursues you to the utmost, just as he pursued his disciples here. There are no, there's no darkness too deep, no waves too high, nor no sea too wide for him to find us and be with us. And that's why I included Psalm 107. Look at Psalm 107. It's, it's incredible how you can see this story from John 6 in this psalm. They went to the sea in ships. They beheld the works of the Lord and his wonders. Um, There's a stormy wind that arose which tossed the waves of the sea. They cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. And it says in verse 30, and he brought them to the harbor they were bound for. The end of our passage says immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. They arrived. Their fear had hit its apex, and Jesus was there, and it was okay. They had arrived. They were home. Let me close with this. Um, Some of the sons of the Reformation on the continent of Europe, they put together a wonderful teaching tool called the Heidelberg Catechism. And the very first question and answer of this catechism says this. The question, what is your only comfort in life and death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul, both in death and in life, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. You belong to him, body and soul, and he will surely preserve you to the utmost. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.